sisters, brothers and sisters, as we make our way back to our seats to continue in worship as we get ready for the Lord's word for us this morning. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you to my wife, my prime rib, who has been so kind and wonderful on short notice. And thank you all for your prayers for our son, Judah. He is doing well, and I believe that uh, the grace of God is sufficient for him and his life. Greetings. I am Pastor Lance, one of the pastors here at Newbreed Church. Thank you for joining us this morning in worship. I thought we would have a, a stream, and I was going to welcome the people on the stream, which we don't have, but that's okay. Welcome, welcome, visitors, guests, friends, family. So yesterday morning, Pastor Michael informed me that he had a stomach bug. <laughs> and so uh, joyfully, I said, all right, I got it. You take a rest. I want my brother to get some rest. Uh, to him and his wife, we love you, and we pray that you would have a speedy recovery and that he would, um, in some way, uh, enjoy some of this time. He doesn't have to be here, but I know a stomach bug is kind of a beast, so um, blessing to you and your family, brother. Aaliyah, Emery, Thea, we love you all. So this morning, we continue in our series, This is the Church, and unbeknownst to Pastor Michael, I'm just going to pick a topic that I thought was suitable for the church. So uh, if he preaches this again, uh, that's on him because I already preached it. But uh, no, he may very well preach this topic. I don't know. I didn't really confer with him on what I was going to do. But uh, the Lord uh, had, had just revealed some stuff to me and just allowed me to uh, bring this word to you this morning. So we're going to continue in our series. This is the church. I don't have any slides because I didn't give this to anybody, uh, but to the Lord and <laughs> my wife. Um, and so over the past six weeks, we've been walking through various aspects of the church. Uh, your pastors at Newbury Church uh, want you uh, to be a healthy church. We know that uh, God is faithful to what he calls us to do, and we want to be faithful in doing that uh, from a biblical basis. So previously in this series, we've looked at the church in crisis, the church is ruled by Jesus Christ, qualifications for elder, duties of an elder, role of deacons, and then we looked at the greatest commandment, to love. And I love what he said, love may cost us something. It may cost us something to love unconditionally as the Lord calls us to do. And so this morning, I want us to look at uh, the church as a royal priesthood, the church as a royal priesthood. I want us to look at the church as those who represent the image of God to man, but also to intercede to the Lord on behalf of our fellow man. And so we represent God to man, but we also uh, kind of intercede for man to God. I want us to see the church as a royal priest who carries out the function of displaying God's character in this world. So the church, a royal priesthood. If you would please stand and joining me in reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'll be reading from the ESV. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us your people. Thank you for inviting us into the family of God when we were sojourners and exiles. Father, thank you that even when you invite us into the family of God, you know that we can't bear your name on our own terms. We can't be like you in our own terms, but you allow Jesus to to adopt us. Through Jesus, you adopt us in as sons of the Most High God, and we can call you Abba Father. And so my prayer this morning is that as we look at what it means to be a church, what it means to be a church of royal priests, I pray that you would grow our desire for fellowship, grow our desire for obedience, and grow our desire to honor you in all that we do as we reflect your image and your glory and your character in this world and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to title this sermon this morning, A New Identity a new priesthood, a new identity, a new priesthood. Many of you know that I'm from Chicago, and I grew up on the south side of Chicago. In my sixth grade class, we had a project that was to be done corporately. We would pass out glue and scissors, and we would just kind of get after it, and we'd have to make a presentation at some point or turn in for a grade. So in the midst of us working on this project, I got into an altercation with another classmate. I apparently, according to my classmate, uh, was speaking loudly, maybe as I do sometimes here, or for whatever the reason, the classmate was upset and said that I spit on her assignment, or spit on her in some shape, form, or fashion, which I just gave that away. It was a girl, yes. So I got into an altercation with a female classmate who was mad at me because I guess saliva came flying out of my mouth on accident. I don't remember doing it on purpose, but I do remember what she was mad about. The female classmate took exception. I mean, very much exception. She was very much upset. But I did not apologize. I kept cutting my whatever I was cutting or gluing whatever I was gluing or doing whatever I was doing. And I said the term, oh, well, something to that effect. After the oh, well left my lips... This classmate, you know, in sixth grade, girls are a lot taller than guys, and this was the case even in this situation. This classmate approached me and continued to take exception. And in my mind, I'm thinking of all the context of a person. It's like you, if you ever played a boxing video game, you see their stats and their strength and power. And I'm just thinking, you have a brother, you have a brother, you have a brother, you have a brother. That's all I need to know. And he's older than me and in a higher grade. And so whatever happened in the exchange, I got punched. I was punched by a female classmate in the middle of class doing an assignment for class. And yes, well, I can tell you for me at least, there was shame, embarrassment, loneliness. I felt mocked, ridiculed. I even cried in front of the whole class and trying to explain to the teacher what had just taken place. It was like a, a five-year-old hyperventilating. I can't, was she, he? Yeah, and it was quite embarrassing. And I never 
lived it down. For the next couple of days, classmates would point and laugh, mock, ridicule. I mean, it was just quite ridiculous to be in sixth grade and have to kind of live that out. It was lonely. I felt like I didn't have a place because everybody would just tease me. Days later, my sixth grade teacher, Miss Dillard, her name was Joy Dillard, and she was very sweet, called me to her desk and gave me a new assignment. She gave me a large bag of candy to pass out. And what's more, she told me, I want you to pass out this candy, and you can give it to whoever you want on the terms that you want to give it out. Like, what? Like, I just got in this altercation. Like, and now my teacher's calling me back up to the front days later and saying, I have this large bag of candy, and I want you to give it out on your own terms. You can give it to Sally, you can give it to Susie, or you cannot give it to Sally, or you cannot give it to Susie. She said, I can give it to whom I please and withhold the candy from whom I please. Y'all, she gave me a new identity and a new purpose in that moment. In the midst of my shame, my brokenness, my hurt, my embarrassment. And church, we've been through a lot this year. As a, as a church, Newbury Church, if you think about the past two years, and I'm going to come back to the illustration in a moment. If you think about the past two years, I've spoken with many of you about your health, your faith, your struggles, your triumphs, your successes, and the flat-out hurt. The flat-out hurt. I mean the stuff that just hurts. And I suggest to you this morning that the dispersed Christians in Asia Minor, the people that Peter was writing to, they know how we feel. They can sympathize with us. They know about not being where they want it, on the terms that they want it, how they want it to be there. But having to be somewhere held up in a house, a house church, with persecution knocking on the door in the form of the Roman Empire and all that that presented. They didn't have COVID, but they had their own hardship. They knew about suffering in exile as a result, but they knew about suffering in exile for sure because they were clearly dispersed. But as a result of their faithfulness, Christ was exalted. Scratch that. As a result of Christ's faithfulness to them, reminding them that it wasn't them who was doing this great work, because of their faithfulness and recognizing that, Christ was exalted. I contend that if these Gentile Christians threw in the towel, then we wouldn't have one of the most pastoral epistles in all of the New Testament. Paul was not able to go over here, a lot of commentators says, to this area that Peter had, had written this letter to. He wasn't able to get all places and be all things. He's not God. He's a great teacher, but he's not God, right? He's not all things in all places. <laughs> but Paul wasn't able to go here. So the Lord uses Peter's letter to get to these men and women. Peter, once who saw these men and women as dogs, as Gentiles, as people less worthy. Now his brethren, he once saw them less worthy to eat it or eat with or kick it with, is writing this letter to them in the midst of persecution. So this morning, I want to draw out from First Peter what it means to be a royal priesthood for us as a church, because Peter uses that term 
And there's some irony in him using that term to a group of Gentiles, because that would have been something that was very familiar with the Jewish context. Now, there surely was Jews where he wrote these letters to, but a lot of people believe that most of this letter went to Gentiles. Most, letter, most people who received this letter went to Gentiles. And how can we carry out that same mission here of giving God the glory and reflecting his image and his character in this world that can cause us, like me in class, pain, shame, fear, that can bring about mockery and ridicule. So I would say that that moment in class is almost like that can happen to us as adults even when life just gets really hard and it's like, man, where do I go from here? Where can I dwell? Where can I camp out? Where can I put up my tent and feel comfortable? So we may not be popular, but we sure can make Papa proud wherever we go. We may not be popular wherever we go if we're obedient, but we sure can make Papa proud. Church, we as the people of God are in fact this day a royal priesthood. And the big idea this morning is that we must be alert and prepare our minds for action as royal priests. Now, um, I thought about this idea before I penned this, and then somebody else had it in their uh, commentary. But if you are a priest in here, raise your hand. If you are a royal priest in here, raise your hand. Okay, Candace, thank you. We're all the priesthood of God. That's what Peter's getting at. And I'll, I guess it's my job to unpack that right now. Okay, I get it. So we must be alert and prepare our mind for action as a royal priest. See, I already gave out a treat, a candy, a bag of candy for that. The apostle Peter is writing to mostly Gentile Christians, 1 Peter 4, 16. And it says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in all that he does in name. These Christians are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter is writing this letter knowing that the household of faith has been hit with persecution pretty hard. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come. 1 Peter 4.19, Those who suffer should entrust their souls to God while doing good. Entrust their souls to God while doing good. That, yeah, yeah, they're suffering, but that's what they're supposed to do. It's an upside-down kingdom, y'all. These Christians are dispersed in Rome under Nero's rule, and it was pretty severe, brothers. It was pretty severe. Um, it's documented or said that under his rule, at some point in time, our brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, were covered in wax and lit on fire to light the city. It was also said that authorities set animals on our brothers and sisters. They were treated harshly. They were beaten and bruised and killed, lit on fire. I mean, it was a mess. And at the end of all of that, apparently Nero blamed the Christians for burning up the city and said they did it. As we might say, Nero was on one. Peter's purpose for writing this letter to the house churches is in 1 Peter 5.12, stand firm. Now imagine you're watching your brothers, or you, you get word that your brothers and sisters are being lit on fire, being wax poured over, and being set an example for those who, who still want to do this Christianity thing. Stand firm. 
So what can we learn from Peter's letter to the New Testament church or house churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire? I think there's something to learn here. My first point is this. The Christian takes on a new identity. Verse 9. The Christian takes on a new identity. But you are a chosen race, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I just want to sing that. Out of darkness, I am running. I don't know, Chris, you might know that one. Peter is writing to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire, but why is he calling them royal priests and a holy nation? They don't, they're Gentiles. They're not priests. They're not royal. They, I mean... Why is he calling them that? Let's look at 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. This might give us a clue. So the honor is for you who believe. This is Peter in the verses right above that we read in our sermon. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Those in verse 8 were the religious leaders of Israel. They rejected the stone. They rejected the cornerstone. The stone that built the temple. The people that actually like got together and said, hey, we should do this and set apart this and consecrate this as a holy people, as a holy nation of Israel, as Jews selected. Um, we should build this thing to honor the Lord as they had been doing for years, of course. But when Jesus came, they rejected him. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The people that built the stone rejected the cornerstone of the stone that they were supposed to be building. But that you get it. They are rejecting Jesus as the Old Testament points them to. So they would have had the law, they would have had the prophets, they would have had on like good understanding of what the Bible said, but they just missed the mark when Jesus got there. But they're also fulfilling exactly what the Old Testament says they will do. And I'm going to come back to the Gentiles royal priesthood in a second. Psalm 118.22 reads, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Once again, they rejected Jesus. Isaiah 8.14 also says this, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. That's Judah in the south and that's Israel in the north, I believe. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, don't matter where you were from in in the kingdom, you were going to reject Jesus. He, He was a stumbling block. Peter is reminding the believers in dispersion that God's chosen people, ethnic Israel, rejected him. The religious leaders of the day considered Jesus to be a heretic and a blasphemer. While Jesus is the foundation and the rock of our salvation, he is the source and foundation for judgment for those who reject him. They stumble on Jesus' claims and are judged by their unbelief. And we can look back with, um, what's the word, you know, Hindsight saying, oh, yeah, they rejected him. I don't know why they would do that. Yeah, they, yeah. But the truth is, we stumble over God's words today. We look at Scripture and we say, we wouldn't outright just say, I don't believe that. But we ignore it. We find it to get in the way of what we're trying to accomplish. Tithing, uh, maybe. Loving unconditionally. Eh. You know. Loving our neighbors, uh, 
Maybe we got that part down. Maybe we got that part down. We don't. Now, if the priests of Jesus, they rejected Jesus. That leads us to verse 9. So I'm coming back to our royal priesthood, to us. How would Peter consider them priests? Because the duties of the Old Testament priests and the priests of Jesus' day (laughs) were now going to be made on full display in the new dwelling place of God. Not the temple or the tabernacle, but the body of Christ, which is the cornerstone to his church, us. That's why you can be called a royal priesthood. And I'm going to unpack it in a little little bit here. But everything they were doing in the temple, offering sacrifices, consecrating themselves to the Lord, setting themselves apart, reading scripture. Guess who does all of that? Us. We do. The Old Testament priests. The Lord tells Moses in in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured, be my treasured possession. Remember that whole possession thing? We're his people. Be my treasured possession among all peoples, all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, he was speaking directly to Israel, but that had further implications as we see over time, right? And setting apart Israel, a holy nation, a nation set apart by God for the purpose of God's will, a holy nation, a, perp- a nation set apart by God for God's will. It's not something we just label ourselves, I'm holy. No, set apart by God for God's will. The Lord, even back with Moses, already had a vision for people to represent his character and his will to people all over the earth. Priests were ordained by God to offer sacrifices of pure and spotless lambs and give burnt offerings. Leviticus 14, 24. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and of the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. So they had to go in and they had to. I mean, and if you've read uh, the Old Testament, um, you will see how tedious and how on point it had to be. Just ask uh, Aaron's kids. It was rough. And this all culminated on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16, 8 through 34. And I was going to just read you Leviticus 16, 8 through 34. Like, this is faithful. Read the whole thing. But I'm like, "Mm, I might lose you, so I don't know. I didn't go with it. But I did. I am going to give you Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. But this was a yearly offering. The Day of Atonement was a yearly offering that the priest made to the Lord on behalf of the people and himself as the Lamb commanded. It is a long, intentional process. So read, please read Leviticus 16, 8 through 34. Now let's fast forward to Jesus. Who is he praying for? Himself, the people, and the people that he doesn't even know yet. Us. Well, he knows. But the people that aren't alive yet. So he's saying, look... The priest had to go in and, and, and kind of like intercede for the people, right, yearly. But, man, I only got to do this once. I'm good. But I'm going to do it for all of eternity, but I only need to do it once. Leviticus 16, verse 29 through 34. So this is after you see that whole swath of Scripture in the Old Testament where uh, the Lord has given them instruction for the Day of Atonement. It's really a trip. So this is verse 29 through 34. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether 
the native or the alien who sojourns among you, who sojourns among you. (laughs) For it is on this day that the atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statue. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel and their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. So that's what Moses did. That's what the people of Israel did. That's what Aaron and them did. Now, I would say, you might say, well, man, that's, that's kind of like heavy priestly law stuff. Well, I raise you a 1 John 1, 9. As a royal priesthood in the local church, this is now, this is us. This is the New Testament church. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Right? Like, if we confess our sins, like, we're purified. Like, y'all see that? That's you, priest, royal priest out there. Then we see the act of intercession and prayer for the people, for the community of Israel. The, intermedi- the, the priest is the intermediary between God and man and man and God. I'm pretty sure Pastor Michael have said that we pray for you often. And you might pray for one another often. And we know Jesus, as I read earlier, has prayed for us and continues to pray for us often for all of eternity. The priests were to teach the law and to be of good character. Leviticus, Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Aaron. Not you. <laughs> saying, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. If you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. So he's telling them, hey, uh, so be set apart for my purposes, like live a certain way. But you also need to be able to discern what is uh, unclean and clean. And you are to teach people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So we have Bible study. We teach. Not to reduce it that simply, but that's what we do. This points us to 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, this is a little further in 1 Peter. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the ways of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Y'all heard that before? Yeah. So that when they speak as, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation when he returns. Does anybody remember who else was sojourning, was a sojourning people in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah. Yes. I believe that Peter is pointing us back in some ways to the Abrahamic covenant. After Sarah, Sarah and Abraham, after Sarah, Sarah, uh, Abraham's covenant bride passes away. This is what he says to the Hittites. I am a sojourner and a foreigner 
among you. And he pleads for proper burial for his wife. I'm going back to that sixth grade classroom where I just felt like I didn't have a place. If you are here today and you feel like you don't have a place, not only in this world, but you just feel like, man, who gets it? I hurt. This is not easy. Man, the Lord knows. He knows. In fact, he calls us to be sojourners, right? This world is not our home. This, this is not our home. This is not our home. I think the picture of a family and a new identity in verse 8 of being called a chosen people and a holy nation, like I said before, points us back to the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was a chosen man and was given a people more than he could even count. The Christians in Rome are those people. We are those people. They are the many nations who call to proclaim his excellencies. I'm going to say that again. They are the many nations who are called to proclaim his excellencies, how great he is, or praise his great name. And that's what we do every Sunday. And in fact, we should be doing it every day. As 2 Peter 1 and 5 reminds us, we all need to put on our priestly garments. You ever, uh, as a kid or parent, you know this, when it's time to leave, you say, get dressed. Tell the kids, get dressed, hurry up, get dressed. So I would say this, as we're about to leave this place, get dressed. Put on love, gentleness, self-control, virtue, knowledge. That's what we as royal priests wear these days. Yeah, we don't need to wear purple. We don't have to have a, a, a funny looking hat and we don't have to burn incense. I mean, some of us do, but, but man, like we can be dressed with his holiness in our lives in action. That's a good thing. I told you, you're a royal priest out there. As one rapper put it, the king got a clothing line to rock his wear. If you're here this morning and you ever felt like I did in that sixth grade classroom, I got good news. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation for God's own possession. Walk in that. Walk in that. Walk in that. So that's good news. You can be from the south side of Chicago, the western of Louisville, the great north, the plains of the Midwest, the south, South Africa, anywhere for that matter. And we all have the duties, privileges, and, 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 and the duties, expressions, and privileges of the priests of the Old Testament. We can first find our identity in Christ. We don't have to fret being lonely or where we don't fit in or mocked or ridiculed because we already claim, he already claimed us. Or even if you're feeling the weight of your sin this morning, it's not your righteousness that's holding you together in this church. It's not our church's righteousness that holds us together as a church. It's the cornerstone of our faith. May we not reject him. May we not stumble on his words. May we receive him and allow him to be the true cornerstone of our faith. Our mark as Christians, as we go out this world, as we go proclaim the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be known for my political stances as a Christian. 
I don't want to be annoyed with schools and what they're doing in prayer. Man, I don't want to be annoyed with taxes. And I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like that's petty sometimes. Like people dying, yo. And we worried about stuff that's going to fade. But if, they, if you do a eulogy for me, man, I hope somebody who's a non-believer say, man, he testified to the riches of Christ. He was humble. <laughs> to do as Peter told me to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And that may mean being humble amongst people. Like, man, I'm not so caught up on why is this lady doing this with her body or why is this couple doing this? But man, I can tell you why I hurt and I can tell you what the Lord did for me. I don't, I don't want to be known for standing on the corner holding a sign. I don't even know what I did with my life and my lips that I would testify. So, we are a people, a Christian people. As Christians, we take on a new identity. That's point one. Point two, we are a people on a mission marked by the mercy of God. Verse 10, we are a people on a mission marked by the mercy of God. My second and final point. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Pretty straightforward, right? Like, the people were Gentiles. They weren't God's people. They weren't Israel. They didn't have the mercy, but now they have mercy as believers. But it's a little more than that I want to unpack. To commune with God in the Old Testament, to dwell with God. I should say, when God dwelled with his people, he made an Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was where God would be with his people wherever they went. And they were supposed to have ritual ceremony around it. They were supposed to care for it a certain way. Exodus 25 lays out how Moses took contributions to build the Ark and the Tabernacle in Exodus 20, and also in Exodus 26. So, I guess if you read Exodus 25 and 26, building funds are biblical. Building funds are biblical. That was just a jab and an encouragement to Pastor Michael. Let's look, at, let's look at Exodus 26, verse 17 and 22. 17 through 22. This is heavy stuff and kind of like logistical stuff, but man, get the point. Man, we give our best to the Lord, and we offer sacrifices to the Lord, and we glorify him with all we got. You shall make a mercy seat. So this is Exodus 26, 17 to 22, when they're building the Ark of the Covenant. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work you shall make for them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its own two ends. Of one piece of, one piece of the cherubim, you shall make the mercy seat on its own two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the 
put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So that's where the priests would go in and they would kind of get the word from the Lord and go tell it to the people. That's essentially what it's built for. Also, other things, but essentially for a place to God to dwell and for uh, the people of God, the priest of God in this situation, to go and get word from God and go take it back to the people. And something to note there, there's no picture or image of God like the other nations because we're supposed to reflect his character, image, and person as the people of God, as the royal priest of God. Now, what does that, what does that have to do with First Peter or even us? And my point of being marked by, marked, a people marked by mercy. Well, remember, God is telling Peter to call himself and other people a new royal priesthood. And the priest would have had a mercy seat to hear what God was going to do with Israel, as we just read. Well, since we, along with those in exile in the Roman Empire, are all royal priests, our mercy seat looks like Jesus having interceded for us on our behalf to take the Father's wrath, that we may be made acceptable in the Lord's sight. The great high priest interceded that we would be spared eternal condemnation and judgment. The priest had nowhere to sit when entering the tabernacle because there was work to be done. Jesus, as the great high priest, sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He accomplished in full what the priests of the Old Testament did on a layaway plan. They had to keep going back. They had to keep going back. It wasn't fully paid for. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. If the Lord made provision once and for all and made intercession for us through Jesus, then we need to be a people marked by mercy. None of us could have sat in the... Stood. None of us could have stood in that tabernacle in front of that Ark of the Covenant. We surely wouldn't have sat down. We would have had to do just like the Old Testament priest did. Keep going back, keep going back, keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. The work wouldn't have been done, so let's not get it twisted. We're not done. We, we wouldn't have got it done, but Jesus got it done. I hope that we can testify about how Jesus got it done in us. We need to be a people marked by God's mercy. If you are out there and you got somebody in mind that, you know, is suspect of the gospel or not certain, man, it's okay to be humble. It's okay to be like, man, I ain't got it all together, but I'm going to tell you what he did in my life. Man, I don't have it all together. I couldn't get it right. Somebody once told me, and I've shared this with you, man, I don't read the Bible because there's too many rules. I can't keep them. I can't keep them either. Let's be a people who reflect the character and promises of God to this world as we intercede through prayer for one another, for the lost. As we sacrifice our time, our talents, our treasure, 
to see people who were once foreigners, not God's people, be now called his people. May we be okay if it costs us something to love, as Pastor Michael said. It costs the Lord something, his son, fellowship. As I bring this sermon to a close, in remembrance of faithful exiles and sojourners, I want you to listen to this article that I read. In an article published by Christianity Today, an article written by Albert J. Roboto stated the following. This is an ode to black history. If you aren't aware, I'm not reading, I'm talking. If you aren't aware of what uh, the Invisible Church is, I encourage you to go home and look it up. The Invisible Church, I'm going to read it here in a second, is when slaves would be in church services and they would hear their masters speaking about obey your masters and listen to me and this is what God has called for you. But then they would sneak away, punishable by death. They would sneak away at night and in the evenings. And they would go to slave cabins and we'll see what they're going to do. The religion of the slaves was both visible and invisible. Formally organized and spontaneously adapted, regular Sunday worship in the local church was paralleled by illicit or at least informal prayer meetings on weeknights in the slave cabins. Preachers licensed by the church and hired by the master were supplemented by slave preachers licensed only by the Spirit. In text from the Bible, which most slaves could not read, were explicated by verses from the spirituals, the Negro spirituals, the black spirituals, the slave spirituals. Slaves forbidden by masters to attend church, or in some cases even to pray, risk floggings to attend secret gatherings to worship God. His own experience of the invisible institution, the invisible church, was recalled by former slave Wash Wilson, And I'm going to substitute a word in here, and I'm going to use slave instead of the word that they have listed. You probably know the word. When the slaves go around singing, steal away to Jesus, that means they're going to be a religious meeting that night. The masters didn't like them religious meeting, so us naturally slips off at night. Down in the bottoms or somewhere. Sometimes us sing and pray all night. They didn't have a place. Sojourners. Exiles. More than that, slaves. Forced. Forcibly removed from their homes. To a new land. Sometimes us sing and pray all night. Church, I'm glad I don't have to steal away to Jesus. Because he bought me with his blood already. The Christian has a new identity We are a people marked by grace. Father, I pray that this time together has been one that has glorified you. That as we gather together as a royal priesthood, as Peter calls us, that we would 
sing to the glory of God, that we would offer sacrifices of ourselves, time, talent, gifts, energy, whatever it may be, to the glory of God. That when we read your word, your law, your truth, it would be to the glory of God. That we sing praises to the king, it would be to the glory of God. That we don't have to steal away to praise Jesus as royal priests, that you bought us and we can enjoy you for all of eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.